Good morning, Cedar Skier Podcast fans. This is the Cedar Skier Podcast on Shovel Lake Public Radio. And it is a good morning for sports talk and talk of all types. So we're having a little bit of coffee talk, a little bit of a potpourri show of topics today. Touch on um, the four major sports. We got some ski news. We got some endurance running related topics to touch on. And I uh, also kind of want to hit on a little bit about the uh, first Joe Biden press conference. You know, there's things coming from that as well. That's all ahead here on the Cedar Skier podcast. You know, we're gonna have to work hard. We're gonna have to we're gonna have to train hard. But you know, this this group has got a has got a gnarly work ethic. You know, so that's not gonna be the problem. Just be tough. You know, I think I think that that's a way that skiers, American skiers, have found success in the past. And I don't think that that's likely to change. Ready. I was born ready. That's the great thing about sport. I am starving. Well, competition. You know, I'm not superstitious, but I'm, I am a little stitious. Get some facts and come back and see. You play to win. It's a really fun race, and you realize you didn't have it, you gave up. First of all, and I don't care if you don't have any wins. You go play to win. I, I just, I have no respect for that. I thought that was so lame. Philly was in good shape, so I think it'll be an interesting weekend. Success and failure. Okay, well, you know, ski season's sort of wrapped up now. World Cup's done. World Championships are done. Pretty much all the races are done here for us as well. So if you are like me, you are taking advantage of extra snow time on snow and i i sort of actually was thinking this the other the other day so last year a lot of people kind of extended their season in a different way because of the coronavirus and how it ended the world cup season prematurely sort of seemed like some athletes did take the route of let's try doing some different things take some risks because we don't really know when we're coming back we don't really know when the next race will be and so they decided to take some of these risks and we saw that manifest itself in 24-hour efforts longer training sessions um, skiing at the end of the end of march whatever and for me personally i was just skiing as much as i could the first year in leadville just enjoy the fact that i could ski uh, had more time and flexibility in my schedule so i was just hitting workouts every single day and, and I decided I'm going to do this literally until um, I can't and and not, I didn't set a specific date of okay April 1st or May 1st this is the start of the new training year um, I just kind of designated it as its own special part right this was an extension of the previous season in fact I mean I, I kind of avoid I think um, a reset like that maybe that's a bad thing to I don't I don't really think of things like yep May 1st is the training year or January 1st is the training year. I record everything from January 1. And I think that actually kind of helps me in in one way because I sort of have these two categories of my my volume and all my statistics are gathered from January 1 to January 1. And within that I might have a few different seasons like a bike season I kind of sort of unofficially you know start biking around June 1 maybe the end of May sometimes in April well actually April sometimes I'll even start biking out here 
but I don't really bike as a primary form of training until well into summer. And then I have a few bike races kind of in the fall and maybe even at the end of October, right? And then, you know, that November, December time for me is just logging hours skiing and and it's sort of the base layer beginning of the ski season. And the peak ski time that I want to be racing well is, you know, beginning of February until the middle of April. And I say middle of April because those Visma marathons, even though I haven't done any of them, there's uh, the, the most important races there go March 7th until, you know, April 7th that month. So, so really I've, I've organized my ski season where even those races in, in January and February, I'm not really concerned about being like sharp or in mid season form. Uh, I mean, it is early season still, and I want to be more sharp, you know, in, in March actually. So the reason I think this has sort of helped me versus skiers, um, skiers who start in May, they start their year. May one is the beginning of ski season. I think that kind of makes it seem way too long. There's a couple downfalls, right? The one is, I think it seems way too long then because you're starting building up for a ski season. That's not going to start really until December at the earliest, um, even if you're a professional late November and you're starting in May, that is a long time to emotionally invest for something like that. And I understand that if it's that, if that's your sport, but think, you think even like runners, runners run 11 and a half months a year. They take basically a two week break, probably two times in their season, maybe three times in their seasons. But again, they break that year up into two or three seasons. They have a fall cross country, an indoor track, an outdoor track. And so their, their buildups for each season are small enough that they can kind of manage them. You know, in June, you're sort of, that's preseason for cross country and base building there. Then you get kind of sharp. And in November, you have a championship. And then it kind of repeats again in December. December is like the June of indoor track, sort of. It's a little bit more condensed. But if you don't do indoor track, it's definitely like the June of outdoor track uh, in a more reasonable sense. So Again, even though they're training all year, just like the skier, they don't start like preseason going like in May. All right, I, want, I can't wait to be sharp in March. You know, can you imagine someone training for indoor track starting in May of the previous year? It'd just be ridiculous. And so for me, I kind of like avoid all that by going, no, I'm going to just record everything January to January. It's going to be just kind of this outside standard source coming in. And then within that, I'll have my different seasons and I can kind of uh, break apart the year that way. And here's the other advantage that it gives me. And I think I think this maybe would be beneficial for skiers to think about is the month of March and April is really good for skiing. But for a lot of skiers coming off that World Cup season, they just want to get away. And they, they do need this recharge point, I think. Um, and I, th you know, but, but I think what we could do is after the World Cup or collegiate skiing or marathon season, whatever, I think it's actually better to pile on some really easy volume you know, just it, don't don't pressure, not not structured training, but like literally the only goal of training is to ski as much as you can, you know, more the better. And and so whatever intensity you want to do or feel like your body can handle is what you should do. And if you and and try to ski as much as you can with an emphasis on technique and aerobic base and and just being on snow more time on snow you know and and so really that unstructured 
you know, it's not Tuesdays are L4 days and Fridays are this sprint speeds and Sundays over distance. None of that. Like every day you go out and you ski how you want to ski for as long as you want to ski at whatever intensity you want to ski wherever you want to ski. The point being, snow conditions are great. This is a really fun time to ski. Some of my most enjoyable sessions happen from like March 7th last year all the way to May 10th up here. We had really good. I skied until May 18th, but that last week was was forcing it some days. Uh, but I think in certain areas, especially if you got an athlete in Alaska or whatever, you know, why not have a month that or a month and a half even designated to that being the goal? Don't Don't put away your skis yet right? Now go have some fun, put in some volume. And then if you really need to, May 1st, when conditions really start to get tricky, you can't really ski in most places uh, in May. And and it's also kind of difficult typically to cross train and bike, right? Spring, the earth is sort of making this transition. Again, this is somewhat depending on where you live, but even in the Midwest, May can be kind of tricky. You sometimes get slush, bad weather. That's when I would take my quote break. And I did last year too. I, in May 18th, I put away the skis and I was like, I'm not even going to think about skiing or touch any of those things for a couple of weeks here for sure. I can't, I cannot start roller skiing until at least June. Probably I tried to go till like second or third week of June, just because it's like that. It's going to be a long season, you know? And I think I did get on roller skis, maybe like middle of June, second week of June, probably. And that felt about right. I probably could have waited another week even, you know, to start roller skiing. And and I was I remember thinking that last year, just realizing like, wow, there are some skiers out east, you know, they had they had taken their time off in April, like May first they were on roller skis. It's like, oh, wow, what a long year. Like take a break then you know you missed out on really good training that i had cross skiing right skiing a bunch getting a real just extra time in the bank that i'm banking up it's not going to ruin me for the next year because i wasn't killing myself you know okay i i literally just listened to my body and skied skied as much as i wanted to made some gains and then in may i took a break when the weather's crappy and it's actually kind of easy to take a break because it's like wow what do i do if i mountain bike I'm going to ruin a trail and it's going to get muddy running. Same thing. Can't ski. So my options are to roller ski, roller skiing May 5th. What's that going to do for you? I don't know. That that's sort of my thought is like, maybe we have to shift this thinking of get we more time on snow is better. So utilize that really enjoyable time to ski right after the season. Don't take a break quite yet. You know, take your break when it's just crappy out. And since the season is kind of such a short window where it's, you know, maybe November to March or whatever, it's okay. You can pick up your roller skis like July 4th. July 4th, you could start roller skiing and you'd still be fine. That's a long time still to train. July, August, September, October, and November, that's four and a half, five months of, of off snow, dry land training. And again, you know, I've kind of thought this last year, we didn't get snow quite as early. The first, you know, a couple of years ago, first year in Landville, we were like on snow, October 15th. It was nuts. October 15th to May 18th, super long season. This year I was forcing out skis November 5th ish. You know, we had some snow at Mount Massive and... I had I did a couple like two hour double pole sessions on a single fairway, you know, just that was iced over. It's kind of brutal, you know. And I remember even thinking when that group of snow had melted, 
And it was like, if I want to do a ski workout, I have to go back to roller skis. And I was sort of like, that's sort of like a rule I want to, I want to adopt in my home is like, once you get on snow, you don't go back to roller skis, right? If, if, if God is willing it that the snow is melted, that just means you need to do some other form of training, right? Kind of let the weather dictate a little bit. I think this year I did actually do one roller ski workout after I had already been on snow and I regretted it. But anyway, I think I always, every year I'm like, wow, is this, am I starting too late? And it never has happened that way. I mean, oh my gosh, I, the first season of me racing here, 2019's, I guess it was 2020, 2020 race season, I was like mountain biking. All my ski equipment was broken from August through November. So I didn't touch a ski pole. I didn't do a single roller ski workout from like August 1st until I guess when I started skiing at October 15th date. So it was one, two, two and a half months. I mean, everything I had done in the summer, I, it was kind of like starting over and I was in great shape by November, December and, and raced really well. But I was like biking all the time. <laughs> Couldn't even really run. I was like biking and lifting weights. So anyway, I think some people starting in May is a mistake. That's, that's how I'm going to end that rant. Uh, where was I even going with this? How did I start this topic? What were we talking about? Well, we were going to talk about skiing in some fashion. I do have some ski topics I want to touch on. Oh, I remember now. So <laughs> I was skiing, but I was listening to Let's Run's podcast, the Let's Run podcast. I really enjoy that podcast. It's kind of long, you know, hour, 45-minute shows, but they are great. They The banter between the three of those guys is excellent. Uh, it's this, It's a combination of they know a ton about the sport, which is helpful, but they're sort of they're sort of wild and crazy too. Like they pose cedarskier.com esque ideas, but they're more informed than than we are. So when they, you know, for example, they'll criticize the last year they were criticizing the Ethiopian marathon selection process. It's like I wouldn't have even really understood that enough to criticize it, and then understood the rules and the logic and the timing. And and they're like they have that knowledge. They've all, you know one of them is coached in in Division One in the Ivy League, so a lot. Of times they comment on NCAA policies that don't make sense for distance runners and that sort of thing. That's why I go to Let's Run. You know, they, they're they sensible and sharp and witty as journalists, um, engaged, but not really afraid. They don't play by the status quo rules. So it's, it's not like you're reading a runner's world that's been filtered through and safety safely presented to you and it doesn't really tell you anything you didn't already know um you know not insightful really at all they they cut right to it and and give you stuff that's like really good it's good journalism in that regard you know because it is bringing the public uh knowledge that they would not have been able to find on their own whereas i feel like a lot of other journalism is just kind of publicity you know, it's uh, it's like a, this big entity that's decided, I think we're going to make this person popular, but they're not really doing investigative work for you. So that's what I love about Let's Run. But I was listening to their podcast, trying to get educated because we got the Olympic trials coming up and I've been all in ski mode and kind of lost track of like what's going on in the U.S. distance running scene. You know, NCAAs, indoors and cross country running happened all in like a four day span. Don't know if you knew, knew that. It was a great weekend, actually. We had Division One uh, indoor track, Division Two indoor track, uh, and Division One cross country 
all happening in like four days. So I know cross country running usually happens in the fall, but they, they moved it this year. So technically we didn't even lose a champion. They called it the 2020 cross country championships, which I think is kind of cool that we don't lose, you know, it's still part of that season. But anyway, that was all happening, and and uh, I've been I I am interest interested in the sport. Obviously, follow that a little bit, but needed to kind of get back into it. So, was listening to the podcast, trying to catch up what they thought about everything that had happened. And they had a cool guest on. They had the BYU head coach for the women's head coach. I can't remember her first name now. Something Taylor, I think. Um, the things that stuck out to me, first of all, brilliance for her side, but she, what she basically did was split her women's team up into a team that was going to compete at indoor track and then a team that was going to compete in cross country and just focus on those two things, which was kind of smart, you know, right? The, the two events are two days apart, basically. So it was going to be kind of difficult to try and double and do both. There were athletes that did and some did pretty well, but as a team, it would have been kind of hard to field a DMR, a 5k, a 3k and a mile, and then have those athletes all get over to Oklahoma and run this really tough cross country course. So she decided beforehand based on depth and based on eligibility for certain athletes, like we're just going to split this, this group apart. And her women's team ended up winning the national cross country team title and her DMR won and track. And I think they had either the, I think they had the mile winner as well. They had a couple of of uh, national champions in track. Basically, you know, it, it ended up being perfect for that that unit. So they were kind of talking with her. And the thing that stuck out to me that <laughs> was like, oh, this is me. This was my mom. She apparently writes letters to all of her athletes before each race, before each race, which is crazy. So let me back this up a little bit. My mom was our junior high coach, one of the great, greatest coaches that that I've had and that many of my friends had had as well. Got a lot of people hooked on running and and helped them in their development. And and I think the 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 real the best part about what my mom did from just a running standpoint was she laid really basic foundations for sport value. You know, taught us how to um, work hard, taught us to be tough, taught us how to set goals. You know, and then also gave us this personal connection, like treated every person as if they were truly authentically valuable. There's not a lot of coaches, even in middle school. It's really sad. It's really sad. Like uh, middle school coaches typically will identify with the, the really talented athletes, kind of give them more time and attention, and they get frustrated with ones who aren't. They get frustrated with athletes who aren't really motivated and don't care. My mom, like... She spent more time on those athletes that were that were unmotivated and didn't care. Like she kind of had this standard and was like, "Oh, I got to teach you how to set goals and work work hard." And you really don't get it, so I'm gonna have to work really hard with you. You know, like there were other kids who kind of came from places where they had already been taught how to set goals and work hard, and 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 she supported those athletes and gave them a sense of worth. And they were often rewarded with leadership roles and those sorts of things. But her time and energy was spent really on those other kids and what ended up happening was our team just grew enormously in size and the culture was one of hard work and really good values so it was really an excellent team one thing that she did though was we had these goal cards that we would fill up before each race so we'd write a goal and then she would often or she would every week write a message back to us like you know if our if our goal was to stay with 
uh, such and such or out sprint this person or just be tough in the last mile. Like she would, she'd go back and, and comment on that. And it was very meaningful. And so I tried to kind of do a similar thing in my first ever position as a volunteer assistant coach in Alamosa. And I think it actually, that was, that was different with high school kids, right. Who weren't really accustomed to that, especially a male coach kind of bending down and writing these emotional letters to people. Um, I saw, but, but I think it did actually have an impact that often wasn't like directly acknowledged back to me, you know, and I don't know what I was really expecting in return, but at the end of the year, I would write a much longer message to each of these athletes kind of commenting on how they had progressed and how I was proud of them and, and then something to kind of think about or shoot for. And that, that I think did really connect with them, those personal messages. Um, and that's something I've kind of actually tried to do in, in any of my teaching or leadership roles. If I get the chance to write those personal handwritten notes, I've done it. That was something my mom kind of showed me. And I just like, this is, this is old fashioned, but it, it just doesn't lose its effect. So I was really encouraged to see like, wow, this actually, this is happening with a young coach in with millennials in 2021 at the NCA D1 level. You know, like she thought it was worth her time to, and it was like, it would take weeks. She spent like tons of time making really crafty looking cards, especially for the national championships. She said she kind of went over and above, but you know, pictures, uh, long handwritten notes. It was just like, wow, that's pretty cool. So that was something that kind of stuck out. I don't know, maybe a random thing from that conversation. Um, and then I thought too, I, I wonder if we'll see people, division one teams, especially decide to do sort of what she did and split up the team, you know, and maybe I, I think I, I'm not so totally in the world, but, but I think already right now, you know, you see on teams like Oregon, the men of Oregon, they will have recruits that are more 800, 1500 meter specialists and sure they might run cross country, but it's kind of abbreviated and the best they'll do maybe is be like a six, fifth or sixth guy. You know, if they're really talented, they can, they can run a 10 K or an eight K once or twice in the fall and kind of help the team, but they're not really consider They don't really drain themselves on cross country because they know they're going to be valuable in track. And so they sort of recruit based on that talent. And I think that happens in bigger programs that can afford to do that. But I sort of wonder if now they'll they'll actually just try to recruit in mass and then go, all right, we're going to structure your redshirt seasons around the idea of we kind of always want to have a group of distance guys and girls that focus on track, indoor track, and a group of distance guys and girls that focus on cross country. And everyone's going to focus on outdoor track. You know, like, because it, that actually would make some sense. You could you could sort of train someone to peak for indoor track and just do awesome and then try to kind of extend that to the outdoor season as well. And if you do cross country, doing cross country and then peaking in for outdoor track is much more manageable. And, and I think, like, what we've opened up, this new can of worms of really a, a, a management planning thing that's that's quite complex, you know, to think about the different talents in all my runners, the trajectory of their career path, how they handle multiple seasons, what sort of events and versatility they have, and how that would just all fit together like a perfect puzzle 
uh, to like maximize team performance at the three different championships. I mean, I, I think we're looking at, oh, now this, this would be bad, right? Analytics has taken over hockey, basketball, baseball, everything. Like, I think eventually you're going to see it in track too. Like, they're going to come up with some analytics and it'll be like, well, this person should run cross country in their freshman year and then redshirt indoor track that season and and we, you know, they'll, they'll have like this model laid out, a five-year perfect model statistically based on when and where they should compete, when and how they should train. It'll just be so non-artistic of coaching. It'll be like overwhelming um, because, you know, the analytics in those big major sports, they are valuable in, in a certain sense. But when you solely rely on them, it doesn't, it doesn't work really. Because life just isn't a perfect model like that. And running especially. I, I, so my suggestion, that idea is like I, I could see it taking root and I could see some coaches going way over the top and obsessing about it in a way that actually ends up being kind of ineffective. They lose sight of the fact that, hey, these are real people and some guys – some guys might like be able to win the indoor 800 and the outdoor 5k and be your third runner in cross country all in one year. And then the next year they grow and mature and something happens and they have a stress fracture. They're out for two months and you know, the, the plan just can't always go according, but that was something I was like, Oh man, I wonder if people are going to follow that, you know, either subtly or intentionally. And what will that do too? Like, because I think that could have a really negative effect on the competition at these different meets, you know, we see in the NBA where load management is the big thing because the Spurs won four titles in like seven years with a group of veterans because they realized, gee, there's 82 games in the season. Like when we play the Timberwolves, we don't have to have Tim Duncan even fly here. We could just tell him to go rest. We might even win with our fourth stringers. And, you know, you've got... You've got things like that that reduce the competitiveness until when it, quote, really matters. And I think I think it is kind of unfortunate. We could see that happen where indoor track all of a sudden, instead of having the showdown between Oregon and Stanford or Alabama, Arkansas, and, you know, Texas A&M, and it's going to be, well, these guys are focusing solely on outdoor track this year. You know, it's like, so there's like no one there. That's like cross country sort of lost some of its mustard because Oregon didn't even feel the team for the first time, you know, since like Noah's Ark. And, and that was really a bummer. And in the same token, the track distance events, they were not marred as much because everyone was so focused on Cole Hawker and his amazing double in the 3K in the mile, you know, like 45 minutes apart. Freshman ran 353 and then came back an hour later and ran 746, won two events. Um, but, but there was no NAU guys there, you know, Connor Mance wasn't there. Um, NAU especially, especially huge, huge deal, right? They're the distance Kings and they were absent notably, even Notre Dame, which had an awesome cross country season. You know, they had, uh, Yagoose, uh, the defending mile and 1500 meter guy was gone. And it's just like, Hmm. You sort of left wondering, like, oh, we didn't get to see that epic clash between Yagoose and Hawker. I wonder who would have won that. And now we're kind of looking ahead to outdoor track and going, well, it'll be interesting to see the showdown here. And it will. This year's this year's outdoor track is going to be epic because all the great performances in cross country, you know, everyone's left wondering, well, what if these guys would have been there? All the great performances in track, everyone's going, well, what about the cross guys not being there? Now in outdoor track, hopefully we'll see everything come together. 
uh, you know, and that's what we want as a track fan, as a sports fan. Uh, but if people start doing the load management effect on track, that's not going to be good. It's going to take that away. So there's the unique takes. You only hear him hear him here on the Cedar Skier podcast, right? Brought to you by the U.S. Ski Pole Company, Vitamix, and Sport Hill. And it is getting to be Sport Hill season much more. Uh, I lean heavily on my Sport Hill pants in the cold uh, weather when I'm skiing. I typically wear my Sport Hill pants and upper combination you know, a jacket or, or whatever when I'm running, but I don't often use my Sport Hill jackets when I'm skiing, not because they're not effective, they do work, but typically because my go-to is more of like the dry fit long sleeve and a jacket because I'll start with that jacket and and usually have to shed the jacket layer. Um, and, I, and with a Sport Hill jacket, it's like, I don't want to leave that thing out in the woods really. Um, so a lot of times I wear my Sport Hill long sleeve because it's it fits perfect under the jacket. If, if I decide, oh, I'm not really getting as hot as I thought, I'm not going to get sweaty and wet, you know? And if, I, if I'm getting too hot with the jacket, I can take the jacket off and now I'm like perfect. So it's getting to be sport hill season now because, you know, we're going to be out on the glacier skiing and you want that really light, dry material. And then we're going to get out on bike too. I got to talk to the sport hill people about getting some bike gear as well. Sort of been back and forth with them. Of course, speaking of sport hill and great ideas, uh, my, my ultimate idea here is the Sport Hill Visma Classics team, right? Visma Classics, a Sport Hill sponsored team of six athletes to go compete in the Visma Classics. Just throwing it out there. Um, if you want to get behind that, you want to ski, race, <laughs> marathons over in Europe for six weeks. That would be the plan. It, it won't be. It wouldn't. It would not be us going over there in January and competing the entire Visma circuit. I think the realistic plan would be we we foot the bill to have a team, and I think the requirement is two guys and two girls um, for a, for a full team. I think um, mi- minimum, and I think it's like three thousand five hundred dollars. You know that that fee to have like an official team is something like that. Uh, but but I think what we would do is. Okay, we pay the fee, we'd find our team, whether it's four athletes or 10 or whatever, and then we would fly over there a week before the Vassalope at March 7th or March 1st, depending on which weekend it sort of falls. You race the last four majors, Vassalope at Birkin, there's a couple of races in Finland, all right in a row. So the whole month of March, you'd be racing the biggest marathons, um, you know, and, and doing what you can in those. And then on the way home, you fly home through Iceland anyway, and you stop and you do the Fossa Vagna Nanyat. I don't know how to say it. Fossa Vagna Claybo Nanyat. So you do that race and then you get home by, by April. You've gone for six weeks and you get like six or seven awesome huge marathon events. Sport Hill. That's the idea. Benefits. Uh, no American team on the Visma circuit. Right, so we're that presence. That alone is going to give that brand a huge marketing uh, boost. Other benefit, since it's in March, here's a great opportunity for some of those World Cup members on the U.S. ski team or top NCAA athletes. Like, yeah, sure, I'll go over to Europe and have some fun racing some marathons. Sort of like the Brit guy did that. Who was the tall, huge, uh, the huge dude for Great Britain? Raced a couple of 50ks after the World Cup season for one of the. Visma teams. Gosh, I can't think of his name. That's terrible. Not Andrew Young, the other guy. 
anyway, so there's my other pitch is like, yeah, maybe you don't take Diggins, but maybe you do. Maybe Diggins is like, yeah, sure, I'll hop in Voslo, but that sounds epic, right? Or Birkin. Probably won't be able to do Voslo or Birkin. That's kind of at the end of the World Cup season. But maybe they do the Iceland one. <laughs> you know, that'd be kind of sweet. So you could just going to open it up, like connect it with the U.S. ski team. You're like, yep, they're on the roster. Sort of like Johag is on the roster of one of those teams as well. Um, she's on the roster of one of the Visma ones. Um, and she's won the Birkin, I think, as well. But it, she might have done it, did that, I think, when she was suspended from World Cup stuff. But regardless, you just put them on the roster. Like, they're there. It doesn't matter. Maybe they just do one race. Maybe they just do two. Uh, you could even have a thing where, like, the NCAA top American-born NCAA athlete gets an automatic free pass to the team, right? Like, Sport Hill pays for them to fly over to Europe and they get entry into the Birkin or something. That'd be a really cool thing. The top male and top female from NCAAs, or maybe even top two. Top two, and they have to be American-born because it's all about U.S. skiing. So the top two athletes, or you could say the top male and female NCAA athlete, American-born, and the top USCSA. So even like you gather that that University of Wyoming, that Western state, like if they win at USCSA Nationals, bam, they're like getting an awesome trip. You know, we know they're not the same caliber as NCAA sometimes, but sometimes the winners of those are actually quite good. You know, it'd be like they used to have the Division Three cross-country running champion. Two days later, got to go and run at the NCAA Division One national title, which is insane. Just, just running an 8K championship race and then like three days later running a 10K. Not ideal, but I think they actually had a in the 80s that someone got, you know, like seventh in the D1 race two days after winning the D3. That's an incredible double. So that'd be like the perk we'd offer. Okay, I didn't, we didn't want to delve too much in that. I've actually talked more about skiing than I, I intended to, and I haven't even dived into some of these other topics we got to get to. Speaking of skiing, and is this on? Testing. One, two, three. Testing. Yeah, we are. Okay. Speaking of skiing, so I'm just looking at my, my dog, Ajay, here. She's in the studio with us. She's looking out the window kind of forlorn right now. Just a beautiful... Border Collie, Golden Retriever, I almost said Golden Retriever mix. That was my dog, Jake. We were just reminiscing about Jake being too dumb to die, the old fart. He lived to be 16, I think, almost. He was your Golden Retriever Border Collie mix that just laughable and lovable and so nice to everyone. You know, the the perfect family dog. And um, I was just talking to my wife about how Jake went into the Hall of Fame of dog supreme efforts by doing a uh, I guess it was about a 12 mile run in the summer uh, at our lake cabin the famed uh, not Shangri-La the what's that loop called Um, Sockeye Lake that's it Sockeye Lake he did the Sockeye Lake loop with my brother and my cousin and my mom, and I—he I don't. He didn't even make it all the way around. He got four wheelered in because it was like ninety degrees or something out there, so he was overheating and all that. And you know that was the that was the monumental effort for Jake. He was uh, never had to prove himself again. Because the reason I was thinking about this, I was just thinking, I wonder if Ajay sitting there so exhausted or tired or just thinking or whatever. She's very smart. She does know some some words for sure. English. She's a German Shepherd Border Collie. So really, really astute dog. She runs with me when I ski every day. And, and there's been, honestly, typical days I will ski with her anywhere from a solid... I mean, I never ski for less than like 75 minutes, even in the morning. That would just be anathema. So, 
nine miles to 13 miles. And, and if the snow is really slow, I, I can still usually, I hope, get out, you know, like a 10K. So Ajay follows me on the trails plus chases squirrels. And that's not like uh, sometimes she chases squirrels. She is always chasing squirrels she can and, and we're talking like she chases them from the ground as they're running across trees and she can pick them out from a long ways away so she'll often spot them when we're like on the other side of a corner and she will sprint them down so i mean if it's a 10k ski she's running at least nine miles and if it's a nine or 12 mile ski it's probably 15 and there are she does that every morning or goes on a run with me but most of the time in the winter it's skiing obviously and in the afternoon she'll often ski six miles with christy and I know that because she will skijore up to the top of the mineral belt from Dutch Henry and back down. And that's pretty much a perfect 5K uphill, 5K downhill. So the, at a minimum, she usually will do that. You know, so we, we rest her too if we're like, yeah, you know, she's she's pretty, she's worked hard all week. She doesn't need a second workout or whatever. But <laughs> the Jake famed thing is like an easy morning or typical morning for Ajay. So it just had me thinking about those heroic dog efforts. Dogs are just the wonderful companions we have out uh, when we're outside running, biking, skiing. And we see a lot of them out here um, with us. And I, I know there are there is some tension there, certainly. And this is a cross-country ski show. I think it's worth mentioning the tension that can exist. And I'm not someone who's like, uh, you know, if you're going to pick sides here and have there's the um, your four dogs fence or the other side would be anti-dog fence. I, I honestly am not, I don't ascribe to that. I think you can have a happy middle because as a cyclist, I, I honestly can recognize and relate to and empathize, not sinfully empathize, you know, in a way with the people who are scared of dogs and annoyed by dogs because dogs can be unpredictable and they can be violent. And it's, it, there's nothing more frustrating than when you're doing like a, a an out and back bike ride and maybe it's gonna be 30 miles you're going out 15 miles on that straightaway road like i had in alamos and you know like at mile nine you know there might be a border collie hiding in the bushes that is going to sprint as fast as it can after you you will have to bike at an all-out sprint and reach 23 miles an hour for at least a minute unless you want to get bitten and crashed right that that's it's like stressful and i think skiers can feel the same way very rightly so when they're coming around the corner like oh man i don't know there might be a dog around here leadville has some interesting policies there and it's it's kind of nice i think in a sense where we sort of at least i've been able to pick out like if i'm at the mineral belt at 6 a.m there's really there's never anyone there i can probably ski on the mineral belt no problem ajay can be there off a leash and um if i'm really nervous i'll come down through cmc and get back to my car if I think someone else has maybe started at the bottom after me because I don't I don't necessarily I don't know what kind of dog person they are going to be so I try to avoid that CMC though is kind of weird they've got signs that say like you know you can't you can't have a dog off leash here but everyone has their dog off leash in CMC and there's actually a fair amount of dogs off leash there uh, there are dogs also off leash on the mineral belt I'd say that's a little more like you know, 70% of the people I see have their dog off leash and probably 30% have the dog on leash. And, and it's a little bit different. <clears throat> oh, the other day I came whipping down, I was straight down. And there was this, there was this lady who was, 
I don't know, 50s, 60s. She was kind of just doing the classic stride up one of the steepest hills in the most remote part of the mineral belt, uh, but it had access to the roads. So that's probably how she got there. She had five dogs all off leash and they were all just running like crazy all over the place. Every single one of them checked me out at some point on my descent. And, you know, I, I, I thought of, there are certain people I know that would have been really frustrated by that. And I was kind of like, well, you know, I, I'm I'm kind of someone who has a dog and they're off the leash too. It, it's not worth the the hassle for me having them on the leash it's it's true it's like that's that's not worth it to me i'd rather either not have my dog with me or i want it off the leash like because i'm not willing to do some weird finagled thing the skajoring thing is different it's a different sport altogether but again i don't i can't can't lose the edge can't have ajay pulling me up the hill right like this has to be under my own power so there's a part of me there where it's like hey if i was forced to have the dog on the leash when i was skiing it wouldn't happen i just wouldn't take her or i'd go in the middle of the night and ski on my by myself but my point is i i try to be respectful of people who are more uh um uh stubborn or not stubborn more strict in that interpretation by just generally avoiding people but ajay does pretty well you know 90 percent of the time she's she's gonna wag her tail or just run on by you know, she's not, she's not an aggressive dog. Um, she does have a few like people she will, she's a little bit unsure of, and she might like jump at them, but I'm all for it. If Ajay were to do something, uh, to someone like, let's say they do, she does run at and scare anyone. They have every right to do what they want to, to my dog in defense. You know, (laughs) I'm not going to say if you're enticing my dog, you shouldn't do that. But if something happens where my dog comes at you, you should defend yourself and, and feel every right. And I'm going to, I'm going to be on your side fighting against my dog. Okay. I get it. That's, I would do the same thing. So if I'm going to toe the line of dog off the leash, then I, I'm willing to accept the consequences of that. I'm willing to accept some of that. And I get that that's part of the deal. Okay. There's my dog rant. This show is just so full of all sorts of things. We should get back to, um, to skiing. I do have an article that I wanted to bring up. Okay. It's on the Mazu's green base skis. Okay. So if you were watching the world championships, you saw everything take place with Mazu's and the green bases and it caught everyone's attention. The 10 K interval start, I think was the day where they really jumped out when it was really warm or whatever. And, um, mostly the athlete that I think got everyone's really attention was Harold Ostberg Amundsen. Oh, for the men, 15 K. He won the bronze medal. And um, using the cutting edge new base technology, okay. And this was despite a brutal crash, which was kind of crazy. In fact, I almost think Mazda should have been like, yeah, "Look at those skis; they're so fast, he can't even stay on his feet when he's wearing them." They didn't really go with that. But 22 years old, a Norwegian national team rookie, um, impressed. Okay, Mazda's post an article on their page. They have they have the news blog, right? Kind of short, but here's here's the thing I want to bring up. See if you see if you find the part that was troubling to me maybe you know if you know the show well enough what what part is like left un, unanswered it says so the the first this is a short article so i can just read it so the first part i just read despite a brutal crash on the final lap the 22 year old norwegian national team rookie impressed from the first pole plant and cruised out of the podium in his first ever world championship at the senior level on skis with a revolutionary new base technology yeah that's what we want to know about the new green transparent bases are developed specifically for the extremely challenging warm, wet, and suctiony conditions the races are the racers are dealing with at the Oberstdorf World Championships venue. And then it has a quote. We've been working on the transparent green bases for several years, 
as a part of a bigger project to develop ski constructions and fluorofree base technologies that beat traditional skis that use fluorocarbon compounds as additives in the base material. Harold Ostberg Amundsen's medal is proof that we've succeeded, says Svein Ivar Moen, who is one of the lead ski developer at Mazus. Okay. Um, so when you read that quote, setting the stage, for those of you who aren't aware, right, they ban fluorocarbons. Fluorocarbons are super beneficial in these types of conditions when it's hot and slushy. Okay, having the the HF waxes, they make the biggest impact in these really warm, slushy conditions. Well, so now that they're banning those uh, ski developers, right, we're looking at some something else to give us an edge, right? If we're not gonna be able to use HF waxes, what what other element uh, that affects ski speed are we gonna try to attack? Because some people have said, well, yep, what if what affects ski speed? Wax grinds, and then the which base material. Uh, and ski flex to snow conditions and skier weight ratio. Kind of, kind of those four things. Well, Modus is going, look, we can't use HF waxes, but we've made this green base. And here, this claim is that it was made in, in, in the, with the heart of going, this is going to be a more economical way. We're not going to be able to, we don't have to use these harmful HF waxes, which by the way are illegal anyway. We can still beat the skis that, and here's the part that sticks out that beat traditional skis that use fluorocarbon compounds. So this ban on HF waxes has not taken effect yet. So everyone at these world's games, assumingly, was using HF waxes. So what I want to know is, is he saying right there that um, Amundsen's uh, skis did not have HF waxes? Because the quote certainly seems to suggest that. Because after he says, you know, this was part of a bigger project to develop ski constructions and fluorofree base technologies that beat traditional skis that use fluorocarbon compounds as additives in the base material. Listen to the next line. This is still the quote. Harold Osberg Amundsen's medal is proof that we've succeeded. Okay, it can't be proof unless you, the next line should be, he didn't even use HF wax, right? That should be the next line. Otherwise, that kind of means nothing. It's not proof. If you put out those skis, but they had HF waxes, well, we haven't proved anything. So I don't understand why <laughs> that it just leaves us hanging. So the story continues and we're like, okay, maybe he's going to explain it more, but he doesn't. The transparent bases that Amundsen skied on in the 15K race are attached to a warm condition ski with an entirely new construction compared to traditional warm skis, says Moen, pointing out that the World Championship medal represents a milestone for, Norwegian ski manu- for a Norwegian ski manufacturer. That's big. I love Mazus, by the way. They're like, they're my jam. I love them. It's cool. Uh, and it's a great little company. I get to tour it. it was, so they have a, a place in my heart. In fact, I even got a book from the person who owns the company. He, like signed it. was on my visit. It was really sweet. He let me know. It was, it was just a really personal company. If they want to sponsor us, I'm glad to jump on board. I would love it more than anything. Okay. So I love Mondays, but the, I, I only bring this up because it was kind of interesting. Like I didn't feel like the journalisming, the journalisming was very good. So Again, keep going. Mazus has made extremely flat, fast, fluorofree bases for several years, but the green bases were developed specifically to work with the new ski construction in warm, wet conditions with old, transformed snow, where bases with fluorocarbon additives traditionally have tended to glide better than those without fluorocarbons, he explains. And I kind of explain that to you, too. 15K skate race. Also marks the first time, blah, blah, blah. Finally, the green clouds of ski bases. No coincidence. So he explains why they made it green. The green bases are part of our commitment to the environment. The future is clean, sustainable, and fluoro-free. Um, nothing. Nothing else. There's one last paragraph. It just talks about how Amundsen fell. Okay. So, 
anyone else sitting there kind of thinking that same thing? Like you said, the article seems to suggest we've done it. We've arrived. His medal proves that we could create something that's going to outdo the HFs. But he doesn't justify that by saying, yeah, he didn't. He wasn't using that. Somebody needs to follow up and ask Amundsen or who's Wax Tech or whatever. We need to do some more investigating. Like, did they actually do that? I don't know. Stuck out to me. There's my story, ski story, the big one that I, I know, getting all worked up for. So hopefully you hung on for dear life as you felt my analyzation of that. This does, by the way, touch on a bigger point that I think is sort of a never-ending conversation, but I love having it. Um, and... <clears throat> Why is because I am sort of the dare to be a Daniel, prophet Isaiah, prophet Daniel, prophet Jeremiah, the skiologian, who wrote an article as a naive youngster that was submitted to Faster Skier about the shoe technologies and running and how that was maybe hijacking the authenticity of records and the fairness in sport, connecting it to skiing and kind of saying, look, you know, runners are upset about this, and skiing's never really had an even playing field. <clears throat> and and my comment or my article is met with kind of this, you know, people were very kindly kind of going like, yeah, the, the playing field can't possibly ever be even. The nature of the sport deter- is, is why that is the case. And so <clears throat> this is a dilemma for me. I think there is certainly a side of me that wishes if hypothetically, I get it's not really possible, but hypothetically that everyone on the starting line of every single ski race had completely equal fair setup, total equality in their ski speed. Okay. So all of the elements flex, Matching the ski with the athlete, the relationship between the flex, the athlete, and the snow conditions, the base material, the grinds, and the wax, all of those things, theoretically and hypothetically, if you could if you could um, create a world in which everyone was equal, that would be the best <clears throat> in, in, in one sense, okay? Hear me out. In one sense, there's a part of me that wishes that's how it was. There's another part of me, though, that thinks, oh, wait, sorry. And here's why. One reason why is that's why we all love endurance sports is because it's on the line. It's, it's mano a mano. There's, no, there's nothing out of my control that's, that is preventing me from success here, right? Okay, that's one reason. The other reason is the inequitable wealth factor. If that's not the case and we're on uneven playing fields, which which is, let's just say, how it is now, well, the more money you have, the more resources you have, the more support you have in terms of giving you numbers of skis, different base materials, quality of grinds, number of grinds, quality of waxes, different choices, um, ability of the wax technicians. If you just have all that, you're going to have faster skis and that gives you a huge advantage. And that is kind of unfortunate and stupid and dumb because there are then going to be talented people who are never discovered. Okay, That's just undeniable. Uh, um, that fact, maybe it's not undeniable that it's stupid and dumb. Okay. You can, you can definitely be, cause I'll, I'll play devil's advocate right now. I'll say, well, on the other hand, cross country skiing is kind of unique because it's not as simple as showing up on the starting line and being the same place as the other person. There is this other component that determines the outcome of the race. And it's kind of this scientific chemist portion. And that's kind of cool. Because you have to master that game too. <clears throat> See, skiing is unique because it's not just about showing up at the starting line in the best fitness. 
It's also about showing up at the starting line in the best fitness and with the best mindset. Okay, I haven't added anything yet, right? Running has that too. You have to be best fitness, best mindset. Let me add on. Skiing, you also have to be at the starting line with the best setup. And that includes how well you've dialed in the conditions, the snow, your ski base and wax and grind, and the the right ski in the quiver. Now, if you've only got one ski in your quiver, this is the part where you go back and you go, well, yeah, that's the frustrating part. What if I only got one ski, right? I have no choice. And I'm, so I'm going to be at a disadvantage. I just, whatever I have is what I have. That's true. And that's unfortunate. But just because you have a hundred skis doesn't mean you dial in the best choice either. And that's kind of part of the fun of it is that you get to play that side and that game. It's careers for people like Zach Caldwell, like, um, what the all the wax technicians in Norway I mean the the support that the only argument really that I could say where like if you just throw enough money at it we'll do better is in that that element if we paid enough money to have more skis to have better technicians to have better setups for grinds they were talking about this in the last faster skier podcast as well that'd be the one way you could throw money at the at the problem and and work to solve it I think uh, but it's called and it's uh, I don't know it's a deeper issue called what kind of brought up like you'd have to have some structure to it some organization make sure things are streamlined you can't just have the right grinder you got to have someone who knows how to use it and a program that's established that's going to make it effective that's true but on that point, why do, why doesn't someone, there's got to be someone out there who has too much money that they know what to do with that is willing to go, okay, I'm sick and tired of watching the Norwegians dominate. Let's just hire their staff. Let's just pay them more, right? Whatever everyone on the Norwegian technician staff is making, let's just offer them an offer they can't refuse. We'll double your pay. We'll triple it. You got you to gotta do our job for us. Uh, maybe they would turn against us. I don't know. It'd be like some conspiratorial thing. Anyway, um, so that that article didn't really answer the question. Now I just brought up that debate. It kind of makes me upset. We got to hit a, t- a couple more ski topics. This was supposed to be a potpourri of topics, and now here we've only talked skiing. Uh, just disgrace. We might have to make another show tomorrow to hit on my other sports topics, I guess. Oh, you know what? I do have to say, since this is relevant, we got to put this in the show notes. Um. Did anyone watch the first president press conference the other night? So this has been on my mind um, for a couple of reasons. Okay, there were there were there were what I would consider four significant points in this conference that need to be brought to light. A couple of Marty are okay. There were a couple of moments. Eighteen minutes in, this is going on by like the NBC um, replay, which I watched. Eighteen minutes in, when Biden says he was in. The Senate 120 years ago. A lot of people were making jokes about that. And I, I'm a little worried that that's going to be the thing that takes off. Everyone's going to be like, look, he said 120 years ago. Pretty funny, right? Okay. It is. It's it's innocently funny, but it's a, it was a mistake. Whatever. Okay. It's ironic. And therefore, it's kind of funny. Then a little while later, something much more devastating. If everyone hones it on that joke, Biden should hope that because I think that would be what what would be the best thing for him. Okay, um, if if people focus on that that kind of just moment time lapse, whatever. Um, the other thing everyone's obviously bringing up is the fact that he was he had this note card cheat sheet, right? Honestly, that's not a problem having a note card with the names of the journalists. That's not a problem. The problem is that clearly immediately the problem that's being pointed out is the fact that. 
there was a distinct order that he was calling on those journalists because he had prepared responses for them. They didn't want to mess, give any chance um, that he would call on someone and that they would give a question and Biden would, would kind of have a moment of stumbling in his notes like, okay, where's my topics on this? I get that presidents show up with like the notebook with topics to cover. Okay, nothing wrong with that. And, I, and Biden had that. But the difference is it was even laid out more obviously that he wouldn't even have to flip back and forth. It was call on this person and answer this question. Okay, so that is a bigger problem. Okay, and it manifested itself about 45 minutes in, 52 minutes in when he was asked the gun control question and the guy the guy asked the gun control question and he he talked for like 15 minutes about infrastructure and highways. That was I wish I could have been in the in the room when that was happening. In fact, I would love to see a camera looking out at the journalists. Like, were they looking at each other like, what's going on here? Are we missing something here? I just asked a question about gun control. He is not talking at all about gun control. Okay. I, I had to go back and rewatch it again. And in all fairness, the first couple of times I was like, wow, no, he, it's, it's as if he heard that question, flipped to the, the, the page of like kind of a different question by accident and kind of started reading the prompts notes for that answer on infrastructure. That that's what it definitely appeared to look like. We're being, if, I, if we're being fair and if you're being fair with yourself, you know, in hindsight, that's what it appeared. And then I had to watch it like three or four times. And, and I guess you could argue his initial response in saying it's all about timing um, could be definitely dealing with the gun control thing, right? We got it. We got to time this right. And so definitely there's a mystery though. Because it's hard to tell if he said that about gun control and then was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to talk about infrastructure now. Because I, I think you could make that argument. Like he thought, gun control. Okay, well, it's all about timing. And then in, the, in like a quick second, he was he just like his mind kind of wandered to infrastructure. It does seem like that kind of seems to happen with him where he'll like kind of lose a train of thought and, and really make like a leap to another discussion. Okay. That, that does seem to happen to him, right? It's, it is, it's almost, it's just like a little bit of like a senile tendency almost. Like I was talking about this now, now we're here. And, and honestly, I think hopefully that is what happened in some sense, because then it's like, wow, if the alternative happened where it was like, he, he just is totally reading from a script and he just read the wrong page of the script. I think that's a little more scary. That was the second one. The third thing, this is perhaps the most scary thing. And I think it's it's totally, no one's talking about it. When the reporter asked him the just ridiculously stupid question, do you think you'll be running against Donald Trump the next election? <laughs> that was a dumb question. Okay, that was just a dumb question. Um, and Biden kind of laughed. And that was actually the part that made me relieved. I was like, okay, Biden is in the moment enough to go, what kind of question are you asking me? I can't tell the future, right? He kind of said something almost like that when they said, so are you saying you'll run in 2024? It's like, I don't know. I can't, I can't even plan, you know, three months from now, much less four years from now. That's a fair response, I think, from Biden. I, I'll get on his side for that. I thought, and then so to pester, well, and so do you think you'll run against Donald Trump? All right. Now we're just being ridiculous. But his response, I think the, <laughs> I think he may have let the cat out of the bag a little bit early here. He goes, he said, I don't think there's even going to be a Republican Party. Do you? It was like, whoa, 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 whoa. All right, I've been, 
I follow the conspiracy theorists here who are on Twitter saying, you just watch America. We're headed towards one party rule. China's really thrilled right now. We're going to become the next communist country. One party rule. That was the last fair election you've ever seen happen, right? That, that's sort of been like the conspiracy line. People are just mocking. Well, that statement <laughs> is extremely frightening. The frightening part was not just the contents of it, but the authenticity that seemed behind it. Like he didn't read that off of a script. That was almost like, you know, he's been in conversations where, where they've been talking, all the conspiracy points. Yeah, we're going to eliminate free elections and then uh, no Republican Party will just eliminate them altogether. It's going to be one party rule. Biden was, you just imagine, right? He was, as as all the, the party leaders are talking about that in the in the secret basement room, contriving all the plans, Biden's in there. He, he's like kind of going in and out of a nap and he wakes up. He's like, what, what did I hear here? They're talking about one party rule. What, what, what are you talking about, guys? And they're like, Joe, remember the plan? One party rule. And then he let it slip at the conference. I don't even think there's going to be a Republican party. Did it not? I'm speaking, I know I'm speaking somewhat humorously here, but did you not sort of have that tinge of like, oh no, I think he might actually be telling the truth there. I think he knows something we don't know. And, and meanwhile, everyone in the back room, all the like deep thinkers who are, you know, the mean people would say, the puppeteers, the people, the handlers, like Ben Shapiro would say that, right? Calling the, the people who are actually running, telling Joe what to say, what to do. They're in the back room going, oh, he did not just say that, did he? Oh, no. Okay. You know, that's how it felt. That was number three, definitely the scariest. Now, let me get to point number four. And this is the most beneficial point that I took from the press conference. Okay, most beneficial Beneficial, you hear that? Right. It's this is a benevolent move. The Biden first ever press conference. He's answering off the cuff, right? Supposedly, and the last question. This, I guess, it contained a a tinge of disturbance, but I will I will explain why it's beneficial too. Did you notice this? Okay, go to the end of the conference. The very last question. The person asks him about something about why or if. I think it was like if. He had no. I think it was why. It was something like, "Why haven't you, um, you know, tried to reach across party lines to try and figure out this problem of the immigration crisis at the border?" Right. And Biden again. This seemed to be authentic. Where he kind of goes, "No, I haven't," because, you know, I they have to posture for a while. It's just it's in their nature, right? And you could tell he was he was looking up at the camera and he was just kind of he was he was just being himself. He was giving a legitimate off the cuff answer, which you you know now. He wasn't supposed to be doing much of. So he gives that response. And then he starts another sentence. He starts talking. Okay. He gets like partway through the sentence. He literally freezes. His face is frozen. This is about an hour and three minutes in. If you want to go back, you can watch this. Because I was, I literally had to, again, watch this like three or four times to see if what I was watching was real. He like froze and paused mid-sentence not at the end of a sentence it was mid-sentence and he just is staring off to the side two and a half seconds three seconds and then he goes but i'm willing to work with republicans and it was a very concise it was this it was actually the quote that was in the new york times and washington post everything afterwards right where it was basically like this really cookie cutter fair diplomatic statement I'm willing to work with Republicans um, who want to help solve this problem. It, it was something on, on along those lines, okay? And and then the next words out of his mouth are, "But guys, I'm going." Right? 
<laughs> and then he walks off, which is the most epic exit ever for a presidential news conference. So here's the thing, the creepy part, right? The creepy part is on the one hand, you're going, all right, one of two things happened here. He stopped mid-sentence and froze and then finished uh, or started a new thought because I guess one of three things. The hopeful thing is, is because he was realizing, I don't think I want to finish this sentence. Let's clean things up. Let's just finish. Move on. Okay. That's what we hope happened. Number two is he kind of paused and did sort of a Joe Bidenism and like kind of had like a moment of senile. Like I sort of forgot where I am. What are we talking about? Uh, oh, okay. And then just started a new sentence. He's done that before. So it could have been that too. That's a little more scary, right? Cause you're like, I don't know if this guy's really fit for doing what he should be doing. Or number three, number three is someone said something to him. He's got like something in his ear, right? Like a really, I, no one's brought this up yet, whether or not he had, you know, an earpiece that would be like invisible. I, I assume he didn't, but, but now I'm starting to wonder if maybe they have some new technology and he really did have something there. Because the third thing that I'm sort of thinking it looks like is that someone sort of said into his ear, Joe, you're at an hour. Like, time's up. You know, you don't need to keep going here. Because you, you got to imagine coming into this, Joe's like been briefed that it's an hour long conference. Just get through an hour, you know, uh, answer questions, uh, be smart, be wise. Uh, here's the notes. We'll tell you what to say. <laughs> okay, but but like when we get to that hour, we can walk off. Because we said we were doing an hour. And so it almost feels like someone said to him in the earpiece, like, we're at an hour now and you're good to go. Here's, you just say this. And then gave him that last like cookie cutter statement. Okay. Because it really seemed like it was like just a totally abrupt, we're done here. I'm moving on. Which again, that's not that abnormal. These conferences, they they do kind of like end abruptly. And then you hear all the journalists shouting out their last questions. That's that's not the abruptness isn't as much as like the turn of events. You were mid sentence, you froze for three seconds, then you said one more thing, and then you left. That's just it was just weird. But here's why this is beneficial. You're staying with me right here, okay? We have a problem in Minnesota. It's called the long goodbye, okay? And what happens in the long goodbye? It usually occurs at family get-togethers, holidays. Um, but it can occur at any time. It could occur when you are um, go, uh, going over at three in the afternoon just to say hello to someone in your family, or you know, um, um, when you're leaving the Vikings game, watch it on Sunday. Okay, anything. What happens is you stand in the door. Well, it starts before the door. It usually, usually ends uh, somewhere around dishes. You know, you're washing dishes or cleaning up, and ah, we better get out of here. You know, and yeah, you better go. You better go. And all right, all right. And then someone says something that is instigates a conversation that is not like a we're just walking out the door. We'll finish that conversation. It's like you know something that has to do with you, you like why did you skip um, little Greta's graduation party? We need to hash that out immediately, you know, or what is the meaning of life according to your theology? You know, um, can you explain to us why you're a Calvinist? Uh, and, and it's like, I can't answer that in one word as I, as I walk out the door, right? That's the first, that, and then and what happens, that just keeps happening over and over again. And all that changes is the location of the group of people. They start in the kitchen and they kind of move uh, into another area um, near close to the doorway usually. And it can even, it can even extend all the way out to the car. You know, if you listen to How to Talk Minnesota, and they do an excellent description of this long goodbye and how 
you know, there's a famous line, the car is in, uh, it's in drive now, I'm, I am backing up, it's in reverse, I'm backing up now, we are headed out, okay, okay, you, head out. you sure you don't want to stay for a while, we got leftovers we can feed you, you know, it's it just like, never end. Well, Joe Biden has given us the ultimate, the ultimate play here, and I think I'm, I want to apply this, so here's the plan, my wife, she's in the car, it's running, that's not good enough, that's not going to get you out of the long goodbye, okay, but if I have something planted, ear earpiece, whatever, okay, she can relay to me, as long as she can hear the conversations going on, she can be relaying to me that final statement, you know, the final statement. If we are reconciling Gary Anderson's, I'm sorry, Dennis Green's decision to take a knee at the end of the first half of the 1998 NFC Championship game, and it just can't be solved, you know, right? We we can just go. She can feed me a statement like, you know, it was the Lord's will. It was for. It was uh, all things work out for good, right? She can give us that statement to really close up the conversation in a diplomatic, fair way, and then I can use Joe's line. But guys, I'm going, and all I have to do: turn, walk, done, over, out the door. That was the most important beneficial thing that I took away from the I mean, presidential address, the presidential um, it ain't about that. question and answer session. Well, I think we are at the point of the show. I better inject some sort of a uh, four majors uh, sports talk commentary. So have you been watching the NCAA tournament? Have you? Because if you have, you've um, <laughs> you've probably realized the budding story of Buddy Bayheim. Buddy Bayheim is my new favorite guy. Probably the only thing I'm really getting behind here at the NCAA tournament. Everything still, again, I know I've gone through this little bit litany of sports just doesn't feel normal. The four major sports don't feel normal. No fans. It just feels weird. Um, of course, I don't have a TV up here in Leadville, so I, it, my whole life is just kind of weird, so I can't really watch. You know, I can't just have the game on in the background. That would be my ideal with the NCAA tournament is to just have those games on in the background. I can kind of you know, catch a glance. I can watch the last four minutes of the the fun ones, the upsets, such and such. But we don't really have that going on here. Uh, but uh, but I was intrigued by the emergence of the 11 seed Syracuse team. So Jim Beheim, for those of you ski people who aren't as familiar with basketball, Jim has been coaching at Syracuse for 45 years since 1976. He's the longest tenured Division One basketball coach. I looked that up. Because I was kind of curious, I, I think it's fascinating, young people who get into coaching, just kind of, you know, how young they can be sometimes when they get into it, how long they're into those roles. It's very fascinating to me how they climb the ladders. In fact, I'll bring up, I'm currently reading the John Feinstein book on the 1988 NCAA college season. It was his book after he wrote Season on the Brink. So that was, Season on the Brink was when he followed around the University of Indiana and Bobby Knight's team really in close, whole season, very interesting read you know, gives you that inside feel. But this book is the next one, and he kind of follows around the entire nation 
And I'll, I'll say this from a writing standpoint, it's not nearly as interesting. You know, it, it's it's good writing in the sense of, of the way he decides to bounce around the country and pick up stories where they left off, follow some recruiting stories, follow some of the drama on the inside on teams, follow some of the competition. But the fact of the matter is, is it's not individual enough to make it fascinating. The part that we like about the basketball, as a basketball player, former player, is Feeling that journey from October to March, the long grind, all the ins and outs, the good days at practices, the bad days at practices, the funny things that were said on the plane, after the games, during the games, those are all the things that make it fun. And there's nothing like that really that you feel because everything's just kind of surface level. But the part I'm bringing this up about the coaching conversation was essentially the fact that uh, I've seen a few names that are now big time coaches, and they're 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 puny assistants. Uh, Capillary, Cap- is that his name? John Capillary, <laughs> Calipari, <laughs> John Calipari, the Capillary guy, the heart, <laughs> the heart and lungs, veins and arteries man. Hmm. John Calipari is some assistant, I think, at Pittsburgh. I don't know exactly, but. You know, you see the traces of these, and you, you just kind of can picture, okay, yeah, he's a real person with a real family, probably has a young marriage, young kids at the time. You know, he's traveling across the country, or, or they'll, you know, they'll, they'll bounce in with some some guy, the coach at Wichita State or something. Like, yep, he coached, he was the head coach at Army, and then he was the head coach at this other small school in upstate New York, and then he was the head coach somewhere out west, and now he's landed at this spot. And it's like, wow, I, I mean, can't imagine really... That's the life, though, right? In when coaching, especially in the big time sports, we, you have to pay your dues, and some of that is being an assistant for four or five years under one guy, and then moving around and taking, you know, just slowly climbing the ranks. So the, I, I just find that kind of fascinating when I attach that uh, those connections. So to have Jim Beheim be at Syracuse for forty five straight years, it, it's really remarkable. And then for those guys who maybe they got it fortunate, twenty five head coach position never left. Um, and, and the a remarkable thing about them, or the fascinating part, I find, is you you have to think about all the different athletes that they've seen, and all the different lives that have come across, uh, and all the different cultures and trends and society, the norms, those things. They've they've experienced all of that in one place, and it allows them to really have a better, you know, they can step back, better perspective, and really look at it all. Okay, so all that to say, why am I a fan of Buddy Bayheim? Well, Buddy is Jim's son, and it's it's not it's not one of those deals where you're my son, so I give you special privileges, and now you're on the University of Syracuse team. You know, he was lightly recruited by the staff, and and he had a, a good enough senior year where they considered having him walk on. And I thought it said something about it was his, like his freshman year. At some point, he got in a game mid-season end of season and Syracuse I don't, must not have been super great but he got into a game played well and has started ever since I think he's a junior now he's six 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 seven <laughs> six 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 seven kind of a slower white guy with just a beautiful shot you know just textbook form shot he can pull up he can shoot from long range um, off the dribble or receiving the pass really he is kind of the total package you know and you can tell when he's playing and he's trying to create his own shot he sort of thinks that he looks like Steph Curry but he's a lot slower (laughs) 
but he's taller too. So it's really, he's one of those guys that, you know, if I was playing in high school basketball, you'd just be like, this guy cannot be stopped because amongst other slow people guarding him <laughs> at six foot seven, if you, if, if shooting it from 30 feet from the hoop is like, it's just, you've just got the ball on a string, direct path to the rim, direct path through the net, which is what it looks like, right? It, it's just a flick of the wrist and it's textbook. Everything squared, shoulder squared, elbow in, high release, good arc, perfect backspin. Like everything is there. It's just like, how am I supposed to stop this guy? And and so you can see that this is a player who he he made his way to where he is now. And Beheim, his dad, said that as well as much in the article where they you know, talk about Buddy. And he's had this, he's been on a tear in this tournament, you know, shooting from three point, the three point range. And, and he's probably going to break the University of Syracuse's three point career record, uh, which is held by uh, Gary McNamara, who's no slouch in terms of long range bombing. And so, and McNamara is an assistant coach on the team right now. So th- there was something, you know, McNamara saying to Buddy, like, you just got to keep shooting. I don't care if you shoot 200 times and miss, just keep doing it because it's going to happen. It's going to start to fall. And, and, you know, he's shooting a, a north of 40% from the three point line. So, anyway, it, th- these are the kind of players that I find fascinating the ones who are rangy, they have good length. They might lack like just pure speed and explosion, but they have just an incredible arsenal of basketball skill. And I've always kind of wondered why those types of players can't really, really thrive at the at the next level. Like, what is it about the NBA that the game changes so dramatically that they can't get away? Because guys like Buddy Bayheim too, really high basketball IQ. So. How can you not? How can they not find a place for a six foot seven guy who can handle the ball, create his own shot, shoot from anywhere on the court, anywhere, um, and and is really smart. And then on top of all that, has all of the uh, intrinsic factors of work ethic, drive, understanding, you know, like uh, willingness, unselfishness. Right? He's he has all of that. He's not going to be a problem by any means. How can you not find a spot on your team for someone like that? I just, I really don't get that. And like, you know, the the blowing up nature of a guy like Steph Curry, who when he kind of came into the league and it was, well, he's too small. Um, yeah, he's a really good shooter, but he's never going to really get a shot off. He's not quick enough. He's not big enough to guard NBA players. You know, it's going to be a liability on the court. Like, look at what happened to Curry. He he's he's been one of the top five players in the league for 15 plus years or 10 plus years or whatever. Um, and it's kind of I think because guys like Mark Jackson, Steve Kerr, those general managers, are like, no, I know what I see here. I'm not going to listen to the general narrative. Um, and we can work with this. It, it just seems like no one really does that with the guys like, like Bayheim. Another example of that that I have is a little bit smaller, but hmm. a player that comes to mind from the Midwest, St. Cloud Tech graduate, Nate Walters, and he went to SDSU, had a just ridiculously fantastic career as a jackrabbit. <laughs> And I think he was a two-time Summit Player of the Year, led SDSU back-to-back NCAA tournament berths. And one of them, they played against Michigan, and he was he was up against Trey Burke, who the Michigan point guard, who was one of the premier players at the time, Naismith Award finalist. So it's Burke versus Walters, <laughs> the, the the Midwest. And he just is your Midwest kid, six foot five, you know. But but one of the smartest players out there incredible ball handler 
quick enough in the first step. First step is quick. He's he always, he's the kind of player who always makes the right play. So he's going to make the perfect pass, or he's going to get a shot off, and he can shoot from anywhere. Just absolute. Um, there's no place on the court that he's not comfortable launching from, and and kind of like Bayheim, perfect, perfect um, technique and everything. Quick release. And so the summer league, you know. Walters was breaking every scoring record and efficiency record as well. And, you know, he's averaging 23, 25 points a game, six assists, you know, no turnovers. And if I recall, he did not have a stellar game against Burke, but he definitely outplayed Burke. Uh, Michigan won, and uh, Walters was drafted in the NBA draft in the second round. And... He was drafted by the Bucks when they had Jason Kidd at the time. And the Bucks starting point guard went down partway through the year and Walters got a chance and he led the NBA in turnover to assist ratio. Which and I think he averaged like what, eight points a game maybe or something like that? As a, you know, throw in rookie starting point guard for a bad Bucks team. Two things stuck out. One in the video for the Bucks team, he was the only player who knew how to pronounce Giannis Attentacumpo's name, which to me spoke volumes. They were all in this. There's a YouTube video where they're interviewing all the all of Attentacumpo's teammates. This is but this is before Attentacumpo blew up. You know, this was 2011 or whatever. Um, no, not that early. It'd been like 2013, 2014. Uh, and so they go. All of his teammates, none of them can pronounce his name. They get to Nate Walters, and he's just like cold and like it's nothing. Nobody is like Giannis Attentacumpo. You know, like <laughs> that should tell you right there. Like this person, this is a this is a type of athlete who's not just a student of the game, okay, but he's going to do things right. He's precise in what he does, even to the to the extent of saying people's names right. I would have as a general manager, like we got to hold on to this guy. But you lead the league in turnover assist ratio. You're scoring almost uh, double digits as a rookie, and in the next year, he was just cast away. It was just bizarre. It was like you drafted him in the second round. He outperformed. He had to have outperformed what you would have expected. You didn't even expect him to get out there because he had a starting point guard, but, but when he goes down, he comes out for a bad team and plays like that. It's like, how does he not land something from that? And Walter spent a couple of years kind of bouncing to different teams, the Jazz, uh, New Orleans, and he never got any opportunities to really just like, yep, here's the keys to the offense. He didn't get anything like that. He would get just periodic bursts of opportunity, and in every single one, he was always still the same player. So it was just kind of bizarre. Like, how can this guy not belong? He's sort of shown that he could belong. You know, um, that's those are the sort of things that the NBA just kind of baffle me. Uh, and Walters has had, I think, a decent European league career, but. Yeah, it's just, I don't get that. Uh, that's one thing that has bothered me about the NBA is how players with perfect skill and reasonable size, or actually good size, if you're 6'5 to 6'7, that's good size on someone. And I feel like sometimes what ends up happening is NBA scouts are only caring about the explosiveness and the, you know, the jumping ability and the athletic potential, basically, of the athlete. They don't even care at all, really, about um, skill sets, per se. You know, if someone's a really good shooter, fine. 
<clears throat> but we're not just going to take a really good shooter. We need a really good shooter who has ridiculous athleticism because then we can turn him into the next Dwayne Wade or Kobe Bryant. <laughs> it's like, or they have to have ridiculous size, and if they have no shooting skills, whatever, who cares? If they're 6'10", and they could run and jump like a six foot one person, we'll take them, right? You're almost guaranteed a 10 million rookie initial contract, you know, for three or four years. And, and then, you know, 80% of those players do just become busts. They don't, they don't maturate at all, you know, and, and 10% of them are busts, but they still get five extra years of being journeymen in the, in the league. And they make a lot of money doing that. And they never, they never fulfill any potential. And, and I got to think part of that is one, they never, they never have that skill development phase where they learn how to shoot, dribble, pass. And the other thing is, is they've been treated like this their entire career, <clears throat> and by this, I mean just like you're special. You've got so much potential. They're they're never forced to <clears throat> go to the basement and develop their skills and become really disciplined players. So they don't really know how to work. You know, they don't know how to self analyze, improve. It's just it's kind of sad. Like, uh, and so I don't know. I I think if I was a general manager, I got to think if you surrounded your team with a bunch, what would happen if you surrounded your team with a bunch of players who though lacking that so desirable unlimited ceiling of athletic potential had had proven that they are self-starters with initiative and intent and work ethic and wow skill actual basketball related skill what if you surrounded a team with all those players would they just get thrown to the wolves if they played against a team that was faster could jump higher was stronger Part of me wonders, I, I've never, we've never seen that before. I kind of wonder if skill and intelligence would, would outdo just size, strength, and speed, <clears throat> you know? Um, so yeah, a great, it's great to have both of those things, but let's be honest, how many players do have all those things? Like even LeBron isn't really a great shooter. You know, he's by far the most athletic, spe- uh, from an athletic specimen standpoint, He's at the top. He's the the benchmark, and and he's a reasonable three point shooter. He's gonna he's gonna probably drop thirty five percent from deep. He is definitely a capable scorer, right? And part of that's because of his size, but also because he definitely has moves, right? He can create for himself. Um, he's not someone though that if you were teaching your kid how to shoot a basketball, you'd be like, well, you should look at LeBron's form. You know, that's the, that's kind of the textbook way of doing it. Not, not at all, you know, and actually there's a lot of players who don't have that. I will say on that point, one of the more fundamentally sound players that kind of his fundamental soundness, I feel like flies under the radar is Damon Lillard, the Portland Trailblazers point guard, man, he's like six, one super quick. Um, he's got a, he's got a good frame on him though, where he's, he's, his body is is uh, robust enough to put up with tough defenses. You know, he can he can bounce off of someone per se, and and yet he's as quick as he is. He can square up to the basket when he elevates up high and and has a really nice shot. And um, yeah, he's a he's one of the more beautiful players to watch in that sense where. The when he launches a twenty five foot pull up bomb, it doesn't look like he's just 
chucking it into the rafters like some sort of a floater. I hate floaters, right? It's not like a Rajon Rondo prayer. It's not even sometimes Steph Curry. He's, you know, from a statistical standpoint, the best shooter ever. But sometimes Curry, he gets away with circus looking shots. But Lillard, it's like, no, look at every single time. The fundamentals are in place here. His shoulders are squared. He's got fingertip control, perfect backspin. He's releasing it at a right spot, elbow in, follow through. It looks good. And and usually when it looks good, the consistency comes as well. Some people have consistency, and, and yet the look is not consistent. And Curry's a little more like that, which is weird. I'd have to really try and analyze his shot to see like what actually is being repeated every time with Curry's shot. Because if you watch him, it does not look like he repeats the same motion every time. Sometimes people say Ray Allen's form wasn't great, but it was repeatable. So that's those are like the keys. If you want to be a good shooter, you either have to have perfect form that is then repeatable, or if your form is kind of funky, it should be the same every single time. You have to have consistency or perfect form, theoretically, in order to have good output and good consistency in your performance. Well, Curry seems to, just by the, you know, just looking at it blindly, it looks like his shot doesn't look the same every time, and yet he makes shots at such a high percentage. So... There's my basketball take for the day. Hope you're enjoying this, this mega Cedar Skier podcast potpourri show. We've touched on politics. We've touched on skiing. We've even touched on basketball. What else do we need to hit on? As this show grows in length, I'm reminded about um, the book I read. I finally kind of just decided I got to read a fun book, okay? So this, this book I read is called Marsh. By Don Wright, A Lifetime in Sports. Marsh Nelson. Let me backstory how I got this book. During my trip to Duluth for uh, February for the race in the Moor of Oslopet, went up to my brother's place for a week and uh, took in the saw a great week of skiing up in Duluth. I really, I really lucked out and had just like perfect conditions there. Uh, and they have some really good trails. Lester Park's good. Uh, it's lit. Lit in the sense it has lights. It's also cool. Um, I the the Spirit Mountain has a, a really kind of official Nordic Center, right? Jesse Diggins flew up there to break ground and the Sears aircraft and all that. So anyway, Duluth is kind of a fun town. It's a good place to to hang out for a week at a time or whatever, and and do some biking in the summer and do some skiing in the winter. And get something a little bit different. And Christy and I one day we walked to this store that was an antique and bookstore, and oh my goodness, it was like it was inside a, an old church. And it had so many books. The, and it was just kind of like, it felt like you were in Alice in Wonderland kind of with just bookshelves kind of kind of organized, but also just strewn about the area. You know, and there was this this older gentleman working and <laughs> I'll get to it later. Well, I'll just explain. When he, when he checked out, it was like this handwritten receipt with a pencil that had like, yep, how much was that book? 12 bucks. And you just wrote like, you know, $12 on there paid in cash. It was just really old school. Uh, but anyway, the, yeah, the bookshelves were towering and just kind of strewn about randomly. And that was different for sure. And um, so just tons of books. And a lot of them were Minnesota-based. He had like Minnesota history, history of Minnesota colleges, um, Minnesota sports. And then, you know, it was everything else though too. We had world history, Westerns. And a lot of these books were super old too. I mean, and there was a, there were not that many antiques, but the books themselves could have been considered antiques, many of them. Uh, so some of these books were 
were just so local that it was like, oh, fascinating. Like, yeah, I want to read a book on the history of Bemidji State as written by this professor at Bemidji State. That's that's fascinating to me. You know, oh, also you have you have every single Midwest college here and all, you know, such a similar book. So I bought this book by Marsh or by Don Wright. And so backstory, Don Wright, he, it says he began his writing career at age 11, wrote a five paragraph ghost story published in the Duluth Tribune, grew up in Virginia, Minnesota, went to the U of M, was a broadcaster, is friends with Marsh Nelson. And this is his first book. Marsh Nelson grew up in Tower, Minnesota. Um, and see, he would have been born in eh, late 20s, I think, 27. It's 1949, he tried out for a baseball team um, they went out to try with the New York Giants, along with another rookie, Willie Mays. Uh, and Marsh, Marsh didn't quite make it, you know, but he, and that little anecdote, right, that he like ran in Willie Mays. There's all sorts of things like that in the story in this, in this book about his life. But basically, he spent his life as a, the University of Minnesota Bulldog hockey radio announcer. He was, um, the, the sports broadcaster for the local Duluth TV station. Uh, 40 years. He was also the PA guy for the Vikings. Um, and so he had so many connections. I mean, in the back of this, there's quotes from Bud Grant, Herb Brooks, uh, the UMD hockey coach, Mike Sertich, Herb Carneal, obviously the voice of the Minnesota Twins. I mean, this guy, uh, he lived the dream in terms of the work he got to do uh, as a sports guy, also as an athlete. And also, I, I would add to that his childhood as well. He kind of lived the dream life. If you're someone who's like, oh, there was nothing better than in the 50s, the good old days, right? If you're someone like that, uh, Marsh was Marsh got to live that to the fullest. He's the picturesque Americana guy. Grew up in this small town playing pond hockey, playing backyard baseball with his buddies, pulling pranks. They mentioned, you know, this, you know, they would climb up to the top of this this building with like a bucket of water and 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 just splash it on people below and one time they did on a policeman had to run away they they you know do sorts of weird things like kidnap a chicken and then go out into the middle of the woods and set up a campsite with the buddies and like make a stew you know things now you probably get just totally arrested for and then be but it was just like good innocent fun and and Marsh was someone who was really competitive. You know, his, his friends talk about a time when, as an 11-year-old, they're playing hockey and, and everyone's playing hard. And all of a sudden, Marsh goes, time out, and goes over to the bank, pulls his pants down to take a leak. And the second he's done peeing, you know, comes back in, puts his gloves on, time in, you know. And, like, the guy's like, it wasn't weird that, you know, we all had to, you know, urinate into this bank of snow, right? And the weird part was that Marsh was kind of the guy who, he would insist, like, the game doesn't go on if I'm taking a quick break here, right? And you can just imagine that sort of competitive nature where he's at. And, oh, man. And and so then, you know, his climbing of the ranks, too. He started out in the, I think, in the Twin Cities at, at a bigger place as kind of the assistant guy. And this this job opens up in Duluth. He takes it. He gets it. He's kind of there ever since. And, and the rest of the book is, t- you know, talking about all the people he met, all the stories, all the connections with whether it's pro athletes, politicians, uh, you know, he, he knew everyone. And at some point, you know, used that, I wouldn't say used that, but, but like it was a fruitful relationship kind of both ways. And, you know, the part that stuck out to me, I'll get back to the, well, actually the lesson here that I was connecting, why am I talking about this? It's because one thing I found really fascinating when Marsh was going to school, he didn't go right away for journalism, but he, he did eventually shift that way. He goes to this job fair and he goes to the, into the room where it's, you know, some sort of sign that's kind of says like, here's where, you know, broadcast journalism, whatever, 
walks in, no one's in there except for the guy who's sort of, this was my job, you know, right? the career. And it, it happens to be, uh, shoot, I should have had this prepared, who it was. Um, it was like the WCCO guy. You know, it was, it was the biggest guy in that position um, in Minnesota, okay? Uh, and he's sitting in there. He's got his, oh, here we go. I got, I found the page. I underlined things in this, in this little book. Who was it? Uh, WLOL's Dick Enroth, the Twin Cities top sportscaster. Okay, he went to McAllister for the career day. So this is at McAllister. Marge walks in, Enroth sitting alone, feet crossed on top of the instructor's desk, hands folded across his chest. So they had a lot of time to talk. It's just the two of them. And Enroth just asked this question. How long could you talk about that chair over there without any preparation? Marsh goes, 30 seconds. Enroth shook his head. With some experience, you should be able to ad-lib about that chair for at least 30 minutes. He then proceeded to give Marsh a lesson in filling empty airtime. And he kind of goes, you know, there's steel in that chair. Part of it's wood. You can trace that back to the development of steel, back to the mines up north. They probably mined it in Pennsylvania, wood processed in Grand Rapids, on and on and on. You know, just go forever. And is this skill, first of all, Marsh and Enroth, they have a friendship, right? And and so he was invited to WLOL on several occasions. It was a major influence. Um, and, and here's something interesting. I didn't even know this existed, but Dick Enroth would do radio recreations of the game, which is essentially, he'd be, he'd be a little behind the actual plays. He would be, he'd be receiving statistics on the ticker tape. Okay, the time the stock, like what the stock market, stock market uses, and then he would over the air say what would have happened, like you know, and he, he kind of says, "Well, how did I do it?" You know, well, you you just imagine what's going on. You, you know, Dougie Martin style. Everyone knows George Mikan's favorite shot is from just to the left side of the lane. You know, you see the inner the details captured and collected by journalists at the time. Like the skill set for a radio broadcaster then is different than it is now, and I think back then. What they had to do, because technology was a lot more limited, is almost more beautiful. It's more beautiful because there was more skill behind it, like that, and being able to ad-lib right on the fly. It was more exciting because, as this book tells, half the fun is is the drama involved in getting all your equipment and gear set up in the right spot, and then something goes wrong, and, and it comes down to the wire of, you know, someone flipping the switch and getting it live right in time, or, you know, they had a, 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 some Grandma Ethel's phone dial, for whatever reason, got wired into their na- or their, their statewide feed, and someone, someone was listening to Ethel talk about her wild rice recipe while we were, we were five seconds from going live with the national championship for Division One hockey, and stuff like that it's all all those old-fashioned things that are involved the the drama is exciting it's uh it's kind of a rat race all involved around capturing the stories behind sports it's just that's what someone even now who goes i want to be a broadcaster someday those are the things that they that inspire them and so the reason this book was you know only what 150 pages it was kind of a short quick read but it was it was really fun to read because as someone who likes journalism, talk radio, you're looking at it like, wow, those were the good old days. That's when the job actually mattered, you know? And it's interesting because those jobs were, there were, there were more readily available than too, more, more of a need for people to get into them. And, and of course, like a lot of other professions, the availability has sunk now and, it's it's not as much to get into it, but there's all these fun things about it, right? It was it was necessary. It required a really unique skill set. Someone who could talk about a chair for 30 minutes. Someone who could recreate the emotions and the and the the complete 
feel of an arena uh, during an NBA game by only receiving statistics. I mean, can you imagine people nowadays couldn't do that? right? You have to have a good imagination to do that. And imaginations come from when you're a kid playing Beanie Baby football, not plugging yourself into an Xbox 360, right? Uh, at least I say, you know, you, you're you're a kid who grows up as a boy doing boy things, imagining and going in the woods and, and pretending you're a pirate and an explorer and Lewis and Clark and playing pond hockey and pretending that you're Bobby Hull and Bobby Orr, sorry, or whatever, and and playing it and imagining it. And those are the things that build those connections in your brain, hardwire those, that ability that enable you to be that imaginative broadcaster. And today, that's just, that's not a skill that's present in broadcasters. They didn't grow up with that being, being given to them. And so it's just not there. And anyway, it's a fun read. If you're someone who kind of likes that that like Americana Midwest small town sports, a guy who then grows up and has a lifetime in sports. And especially if you're a Minnesota person, you will appreciate that. But if you're someone that just appreciates some of the good qualities, of the old fashioned days, uh, you'll appreciate that book as well. Uh, I have to bring it to the lake. I, bet, I think my dad would love reading this book about Marsh Nelson. The only thing I will say on the side though, that became prevalent to me as the skiologian was how this would have been a job that would have been very poor for family life. And I understand now when I was kind of telling my parents, sometimes when I was like eight or nine, I want to be a broadcaster or journalism or news. And the one thing they kind of did would occasionally warn me about is that's not a great job for families, for being like a good dad. You're gone a lot, right? And the hours are hard. That was very evident here. It's like I Marsh was married and had kids, and they were quoted in the book a few times. I can't imagine though he was super present. I mean, he, he flying out to the hockey game. You know, you go from Duluth to Michigan Tech. You're there Thursday through Saturday night. Then you fly Sunday do PA for the Vikings, and then all week you're doing like news at night, sports broadcasts. There's no way you would have been able to go to. Aunt, or, you know, to father-daughter dances and Susie's spelling bee and, you know, the random fourth grade Parks and Rec basketball game. It's just, I don't know, much less being just at home and present and engaging with your child in an imaginative sense. So I think that's, if there's if there's a downside to the profession back then, I'm sure it's still present now. You know, the rat race is, is definitely there. Uh, it would have been highlighted probably even more so because of the lack of technology that was available to them. Well, um, I I did not touch on a few other topics I wanted to get to. I, I didn't touch on the NCA scheme, Minnesota State High School scheme, uh, and so I guess maybe we'll maybe we'll come back to that another time. But I'm assuming you know people are probably getting sick of this conversation at this point. <laughs> One of the longer Cedar Skier podcast shows, especially without any um, any guests. So we will see you next time.